More than 300 journalists and onlookers crowded into a nearby overflow room as Donald Trump, the first former president indicted in American history, was arraigned today in Miami. Trump pleaded not guilty to a litany of federal charges. He has now left the courthouse. Today is Tuesday, June 13th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, inflation has fallen to 4% in the U.S. and the price of one particular food product has come out of the stratosphere. We have more than 300 million egg-laying chickens in the United States. The egg supply is robust. I'd say it's a good time to be an egg lover. More on the new cost of living report from the Labor Department. And the recent and abrupt shortage of critical cancer drugs spotlights a broken business model in generic drugs that leaves patients all over the world more vulnerable vulnerable to similar shortages. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Trump loyalists were outside the Miami courthouse today where former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 counts, federal charges that he unlawfully retained defense and other classified documents after leaving office and failed to turn all of them over to the Justice Department. And Pierre Scott Detrow says Trump, who is seeking a return to the White House, remains defiant. Every single investigation into him, whether it was the Mueller investigation or the first time he was impeached or the second time he was impeached or the time that he was charged in New York State in a different criminal matter or the ongoing special counsel investigation into January 6th or many other things, he says, this is a witch hunt. I'm being politically persecuted. NPR's Scott Detrow report, reporting. Large numbers of Trump supporters turned out outside the courthouse. Wake up, America! Wake up, America! Wake up, America! Miami police say they ramped up security ahead of demonstrations. The Biden administration has announced another $325 million in security assistance for Ukraine. It comes as NATO Secretary General visits Washington, D.C. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has the latest. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the aid that allies are giving to Ukraine is making a difference on the battlefield, helping Ukraine with its counteroffensive against Russia's occupying forces. They are making uh, advances, uh, they are gaining ground. This is still early days, uh, but uh, what we all know is that uh, the more land the Ukrainians are able to liberate, uh, the stronger their hand will be at the negotiating table. If or when there are negotiations. Stoltenberg was speaking alongside Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who says NATO will announce more support for Ukraine at a summit in July. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The Fed's holding another meeting where it's widely expected to hit the pause button on its aggressive rate hike campaign in light of data like the report out today showing inflation eased again. And Pierre Zelina Seljuk with the numbers. Prices in May were 4% higher than a year earlier, and that's an improvement from April when the annual inflation measure was 4.9%. On a monthly basis, May prices climbed 0.1% from April. Inflation has moderated significantly since a year ago when it hit a 40-year record last summer. The cost of gas and food had skyrocketed and now has come down, but the cost of living still continues to climb, even after the series of 10 interest rate increases by the Federal Reserve. The central bank now begins yet another policy meeting where it's widely expected to leave interest rates unchanged for now. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up 145 points, ending the day at 34,212. The S&P was up 30 points and the Nasdaq was up 111. You're listening to NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some reaction now to the arraignment of Donald Trump. This afternoon, the former president pleaded not guilty to 37 felony counts of retaining classified documents and trying to hide them from investigators. Governor Maura Healey, who is a former prosecutor, says the federal government is justified in taking Trump to court. No one in this country is above the law. We're all accountable to the law, and the legal process will, will play itself through. Trump has denied any wrongdoing. He is the first former president in U.S. history to face federal charges. He has been released on his own recognizance. Transportation leaders in Massachusetts want drivers who use the Sumner Tunnel in Boston to leave their cars at home when the tunnel closes for repairs next month. It'll be shut down for two months. And WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the state says using alternative transit might be the best way to avoid traffic headaches. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation estimates that about 39,000 cars use the tunnel each day. MassDOT Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver expects the closure will clog roads and delay commutes by an hour or more. Believe us when we tell you that the worst commute you're going to have is on the road through this area, so if you can take another way, you should do it. Travel alternatives include the MBTA Blue Line or the East Boston Ferry. Both will be free during the shutdown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The city of Somerville is distributing free MBTA passes to low-income households. The program will give 500 year-long passes to qualifying residents on a first-come, first-served basis. People in Somerville who are enrolled in a public benefits program or who earn up to twice the federal poverty level are eligible for the passes. Applications are available online or by telephone. There's a rare sighting off the coast of Massachusetts this weekend. The New England Aquarium says four orcas, also known as killer whales, were spotted 40 miles south of Nantucket on Sunday. Aquarium officials say it is rare to see orcas in New England waters. 73 degrees now turned out to be a lovely day today on the windy side and a bit humid as well. Tonight, cloudy skies, patchy fog, temperatures around 60, chance of showers during the first part of the night tonight. And for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds mixing it up, chance of showers in the afternoon especially, temperatures in the upper 70s. 73 degrees now in Boston at 407. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's been an historic afternoon. As we've been reporting, former President Donald Trump turned himself into federal authorities in Miami. He pleaded not guilty to 37 charges. Prosecutors say he took classified information with him after leaving office and obstructed efforts to recover them. This is the first time a former president has been indicted on federal charges. Thousands of people gathered outside the federal courthouse. And that's where NPR's Greg Allen is also. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ari. Before we discuss that scene outside, tell us what happened inside the courtroom today. Well, you know, this is the federal court, so there's no video cameras. Uh, and laptops and cell phones were not even allowed inside today for media, which does happen some, in some cases. In the courtroom, there are seats for about two dozen journalists, but there was a big overflow room for members of the public and other reporters. And President Trump pleaded not guilty to each of the 37 federal charges related to his retention of classified information after leaving office. It was a quick court hearing, less than an hour. And while that was happening, what was going on outside the court where you are? Well, it's definitely been a chaotic scene here all day long. Uh, Trump supporters have arrived throughout the day. 
Among them was uh, Luis Medina, who said he was from Miami. He said he felt the charges against the former president are unfair. What you got to realize is today the U.S. Constitution is on trial because that's his citizen, Donald Trump, no longer president. And if that happens to you and I, how can we defend ourselves? It was a difficult to get a number of, of how many people were here. But as the president led the court, because they're all scattered through the crowd, as the president led the courthouse, where they gathered outside and, and where his motorcade was leaving from. And uh, it was quite a scene. I'd say there was well over a thousand people there, maybe in, in the low thousands. And was it relatively peaceful? Any signs of tension or violence? Well, yeah, you know, not. It was generally peaceful. Uh, it's really been just something like a carnival atmosphere all day long, with vendors here selling Trump T-shirts and hats. Uh, at one point, Mayor of uh, the Mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, came by to assess the scene. Here's what he I said: think "We are managing the situation very well right now. There haven't been any incidents, and uh, we obviously have a, a, a very large force, and we have contingency plans to grow um, if there's any issues." You know, this is a real volatile crowd here, though. And Mayor Suarez, although he's a Republican, he's been talking about entering the presidential race. And as he was talking to the media and walking to the crowd, Trump supporters started chanting, Rhino, shame on you, you know, for uh, Republican in name only. So hmm. he was not popular with the Trump supporters here today. There were also some incendiary posts on social media, some of them calling for violence. Were police concerned? Well, you know, yesterday, Miami's police chief said he'd seen the posts and didn't consider them credible. And I think, you know, the way things turned out shows that he was correct in that in that case. Uh, former Arizona Republican candidate for governor, Carrie Lake, was one of those who seemed to be talking about violence in her social media, in her, in her, in her speeches. She was here today but didn't address the crowd. Um, you know, there, there was really just a small smattering of anti-Trump protesters here. But that did lead to some heated exchanges. In one case, uh, that seemed to be moving toward violence. Police, police stepped in and they separated the parties. And that was about it in terms of what I saw today in terms of the threat of violence. And what could you tell about who came out for this? Why so many people came out? Like, what was their motivation? Well, you know, the crowd here really was a South Florida crowd. Almost every Trump supporter I and fellow reporter Peter Hayden talked to today said they're from you know, Miami or, or suburbs of Miami. And we heard a lot of chanting on loudspeakers and in crowds in, in English and in Spanish. Uh, Trump, of course, over his term as president, gained a lot of support from the Cuban-American community here in South Florida. And uh, many people have been falsely accused. And today we heard many people accusing Joe Biden falsely of being a communist. Uh, Trump himself has even picked up on that rhetoric, using the saying the U.S. is on the verge of becoming a communist country. So his, it's really resonating, I think, some of his, his talk and his and his and being under under fire here by the justice system. I think people here are really rallying around. That's NPR's Greg Allen outside the federal courthouse in Miami, where former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to the 37 counts against him. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Many patients fighting cancer are facing another agonizing problem. Some key drugs that are used to treat the disease are in short supply, and there's no immediate fix. NPR's Yuki Noguchi explains how a broken market for generic drugs means shortages like this are affecting more people. When I reach Tony Desimitz at her home outside Raleigh, she first tells me not to pity her for having advanced ovarian cancer. But you know what? <laughs> I'm probably the toughest person you're ever going to meet. She's faced death and the fear of it. She fought in the Gulf War. She then climbed police ranks, becoming chief before retiring. 
At 55, she still feels mentally tough and physically primed, despite her stage four diagnosis. When we're done talking, I'm gonna go on a 10 mile bike ride. The other day I did 20 miles, so I'm gearing up for next week. I try to gear up all the way until the day I have chemotherapy. So I don't ever sit around and go, well, how long do people live with this cancer? I know what the statistics say. But even Desimates felt scared in early April. A medicine called carboplatin, which had almost eliminated tumors in her previous rounds of treatment, was in very short supply. Not just carboplatin, but also a similar drug called cisplatin. Both are core to treating many different cancers. The Food and Drug Administration recently said it would allow import of unapproved cisplatin from China. Still, experts say it may be year's end before shortages might begin to ease. All that has put Desimates in a tough spot. So here I am faced with two suboptimal treatment plans. One choice, substitute a drug with more severe side effects like nausea and nerve pain. The other, continue treatment without it. She opted to go without, but won't know the health implications of that choice for weeks at her next scan. The story of how these two critical medicines, plus more than a dozen other cancer drugs, ended up in shortage boils down to a faulty system of generic drug making overall. That's something Professor Kevin Schulman researches at Stanford. We have a market that's really just totally focused on price. Americans rely on generic drugs for over 90 percent of their prescriptions. But Schulman says it's hard for drug makers to make a profit on medicines once their patents run out. Manufacturers are under constant pressure to make generic product at the lowest cost possible, even at a loss. That's led to factory shutdowns. Those that remain are driven to cut dangerous corners. Take Intus, the India-based company that made half the U.S.'s key cancer drugs. FDA inspectors found evidence of major safety and quality violations last November. They shut it down, which abruptly cut supply. Shulman says it's a global problem. The pursuit of low-priced generics has come at the expense of safety and ensuring steady supply. Currently, about 130 generic drugs are in shortage or unavailable, and that list keeps growing. I mean, we save hundreds of billions of dollars a year using generic drugs rather than brand name drugs, but we only save that money if the drugs are available. And when crucial drugs are not available, Denver oncologist Jennifer Rubot says the toll feels very heavy. Several weeks ago, her health system's pharmacist told her both key cancer drugs her patients rely on ran out. They recommended substitutes. When I was faced with this drug substitution for a young woman with young kids, I did cry because but if her cancer comes back, I am always going to question if it was because I had to give her a substitute. Drug shipments have since trickled in, but Rubat worries they'll run out again and pours over research looking for alternatives least likely to compromise patients' care. Last month, the Society for Gynecologic Oncology issued recommendations for doctors, advising them on managing use of limited drugs if supply runs lower. Patients with early-stage, high-risk disease should be top priority. It also recommends using minimum doses and stretching time between treatments to make it last. Amanda Fader is at Johns Hopkins and is president-elect of the society. There's hundreds of thousands of patients being impacted by the shortage, 
and even missing one or two cycles of treatment could impact patients' outcomes. Pater says in the longer run, the business model itself must change to ensure good quality supply. Certainly a reimagined model of delivery to hospital systems, whether directly from manufacturers or an improved intermediary model, I think is critical. Civica offers one such alternative. The nonprofit formed five years ago to address shortages of other drugs, especially injectable ones, which are more complex to make. Civica purchases medicines directly from manufacturers to supply health systems that operate 1,500 hospitals. It conducts its own quality control and fixes drug prices high enough to ensure factories can stay in business. Alan Cockle heads public policy for Civica and says there are other benefits. It also lets us build up an inventory reserve. So we actually hold roughly six months of drug in a warehouse. Cockle says Civica now supplies 80 essential drugs, things like antibiotics or anesthesia. It's evaluating whether and how to add cancer drugs to its list. But even if it does, it will take many months, maybe longer, before it could benefit patients like Tony Desimitz, the retired police chief. Yet she's worried more about others. My oncologist is beside herself. I mean, they're struggling too because, you know, they've signed up to help people and they're powerless. She's joined support groups with hundreds of other cancer patients, many of whom lament how the drug shortage compounds their suffering. Some reach out to Desimitz for support from around the country. As she has throughout her life, Desimitz welcomes those calls as an opportunity to serve others. Like right now you're living, and that's, that's what I say. I'm like, I'm living right now. Mentally, if you can keep yourself in a very positive mindset, it will carry you very far in a cancer journey. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, what's the price of living in the U.S. these days? A new cost of living report from the Labor Department. And coming up next, is that really the police trying to reach you or just another con artist? We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, ICABoston.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Stocks rose across the board today. The Dow picked up about four-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ hit 13-month highs. The S&P rose about seven-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ picked up just over eight-tenths of a percent. Pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly says it plans to open more than 300,000 square foot of research and development campus in the seaport in August of next year. It'll be called the Lilly Institute for Genetic Medicine and is expected ultimately to employ about 700 people. That's nearly three times the original estimate announced last year. It's 419. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS, and the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott strive to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com little on the sticky side out there now. Lovely sunshine, though. Tonight we should have cloudy skies moving in, patchy fog, temperatures about 60 degrees. Could have some showers for the first part of the night tonight. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies. The chance of rain in the afternoon should make it to the upper 70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Phone scams are surging because they're getting more sophisticated. The most pervasive kind involves con artists impersonating law enforcement in some pretty innovative new ways. NPR's tech correspondent Derek Kerr reports. It was around 1 in the afternoon on a Monday when Valeria Hato's phone rang. It was from a number she didn't recognize. His name is Officer Robert Daniels from the Department of CBP, something like this. CBP, as in U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Hato Googled Officer Daniels and it checked out. And the number and her caller ID was from his office listed online. He said he'd intercepted a package from Mexico. It was addressed to Hato. In that package, they found narcotics, they found cash, driver's license, and fake social security numbers, all under my name. He said he had a warrant for Hato's arrest. She was panic-stricken. I always get a little bit nervous or paralyzed if there's something legal that I have to deal with. I got very nervous and I cried. Then it got more complicated. Supposedly, she had two illegal properties in Texas, along with illegal bank accounts. Hato's from Argentina, but lives in Queens, New York, and has no connection to Texas or Mexico. And I was like, this is not happening. Like, (laughs) this is just not real. Because it just sounded so much like a movie. And this wasn't just one phone call. She was routed to multiple law enforcement agencies. She spoke to a U.S. Marshal in Texas who had a Texan accent, and a police officer in Queens who sounded like he grew up in the neighborhood. And the only way to fix the problem was to move her money from her bank account to a safe place. They really took me in a trip of darkness where I was imagining the police coming here, arresting me for all this illegal stuff. This scam is known as an imposter scam. It's the top fraud in the country right now. UCLA psychologist Alan Castell says this is why it works. They prey on our insecurities. So unfortunately, scammers are like psychologists in the wild. This particular imposter scam involving several law enforcement agencies is especially pervasive. The U.S. Marshals even warn about it on their answering machine. Please know, the U.S. Marshal Service nor any other law enforcement agency will ever ask you for money over the phone. 
Brady McCarran is a real U.S. Marshal. He gets calls from scam victims as many as six or seven per day. Nearly all get the same script Hato heard. McCarran says the scammers do use names of actual U.S. Marshals. They've even used his boss's name. And they tell them, look on the website, that's me right there. That's So you know I'm, I'm not lying to you, I'm real. Phone scams have been around forever, but now con artists get information from the internet to impersonate real people. There's technology that can clone accents, and there's caller ID spoofing. McCarran says that's why the incoming calls look like they're from actual agencies. He hears from people who've fallen for the scam. They've lost $10,000, $30,000. Those are the phone calls I hate to get, and it tears my heart apart to hear these stories. The U.S. Marshal Service refers these scams to the FBI and the Federal Trade Commission. Lois Greisman from that agency says many of these calls are coming from overseas, and people lost a total of $2.6 billion to imposter scams just last year. What is particularly pernicious about the imposter scams is that there's a relatively high rate of people who are duped by them. Valeria Hato stayed on the phone with the scammers for more than three hours. They stopped accusing her of crimes and said she was clearly a victim of identity theft. If she wanted to secure her bank account, the only way to do that was to withdraw money and deposit it into a cryptocurrency ATM machine. That's when she finally drew the line, even though they threatened to freeze her bank account. I am not going to put any money on any digital currency. I don't understand those things. Forget about it. That's not for me. She hung up without giving them money, although part of her still believed their story. When she woke up the next morning, her bank account wasn't frozen. All her money was there. That's when she finally realized she narrowly escaped a scam. Dara Kerr, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All hail the Denver Nuggets, who as of last night are the new champions of the National Basketball Association. <laughs> But do spare a thought for their opponents in the NBA Finals, the Miami Heat, who not only travel back to Florida disappointed, but also have to pay taxes to the state of Colorado. It's colloquially known as the jock tax. It's an income tax that many places charge non-residents on money earned while visiting. It's enforced mostly on visiting entertainers and pro athletes who can make high incomes. And while it's been around for decades, it came to prominence in the summer of 1991. Paxson open again. John Paxson continues to provide the crushing shots. That's when the sharpshooting of point guard John Paxson helps Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan and the rest of the Chicago Bulls start an NBA dynasty. And the Chicago Bulls have won their first ever NBA championship. 
They clinched that first title against the Los Angeles Lakers in L.A. And afterwards, it came to light that the state of California was taxing the income that each Bulls player and staff member earned while in state, meaning while beating the Lakers. So in response, Illinois drafted up jock tax legislation of its own, which earned its own nickname, Michael Jordan's Revenge. Today, every state with an income tax assesses a jock tax on visiting pro athletes, and some cities do too. A lot of athletes have to file lots of returns. That's Ed Zielinski, professor at Yeshiva University's Cardozo School of Law. These kinds of taxes on non-residents' income have been on the books for years. The reason we're talking about this is that it's been in the last couple of decades that cash-starved states and cities have gotten more serious about enforcing these taxes. For instance, the state of California brings in hundreds of millions of dollars in these taxes yearly. Not much within the hundreds of billions the state makes in taxes every year, but, you know, not nothing. While most multimillionaire athletes can afford it, filing in more than a dozen places does eat away at the salaries of athletes who aren't stars or who play at a lower level. In some ways, I'm more concerned about the minor league players because they are individuals who have much lower incomes, and yet they're subjected often to the same degree of complexity. Same is true of touring musicians, as I know firsthand. <laughs> Sorry, Ari. Enforcement often shows up in the form of deficiency bills. This is the ultimate tax that a tax collector likes to impose because it's on a non-voter. Law professor Ed Zielinski forecasts that even more state and city tax commissioners will follow suit now that federal relief funding from COVID-19 has dried up. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, we remember Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Cormac McCarthy. In sports, the Red Sox take on the Colorado Rockies again at Fenway tonight. It's game two of a three-game set. The Rockies took the opener last night. Cutter Crawford pitches for Boston. Chase Anderson takes the hill for Colorado. First pitch at Fenway is 7-10. In the forecast overnight tonight, we could have some clouds and showers maybe on the early side, patchy fog, temperatures about 60 degrees. And then for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds both, rain in the afternoon possible, temperatures in the upper 70s, 73 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include BG Catering Concepts, corporate and social event planning and catering for special occasions, bgcateringconcepts.com. And BMW, the BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Artificial intelligence has powered huge leaps in surveillance tech. There are automated passive camera systems that are just watching all the time and you don't even realize that you're being watched. China already tracks millions inside its borders and experts say the AI that puts eyes everywhere makes that possible much closer to home. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Miami, former President Donald Trump and a close aide made their first court appearance today since being indicted last week on a series of charges 
around retaining classified information at uh, Trump's Florida estate. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more on the historic proceedings. Former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 felony charges during a Miami federal court appearance. Trump is facing charges including obstruction of justice and unlawful retention of defense information. Trump's personal aide, Walt Nada, who was indicted with six federal charges, also appeared in court today. Outside of the courthouse, hundreds of Trump loyalists gathered to rally in support of the former president. Though a magistrate judge presided over this initial court appearance, Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, is expected to oversee the case moving forward. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Police in Hong Kong have arrested a man who spray-painted anti-American graffiti on the U.S. consulate there. NPR's John Ruich tells us this comes at a time of deep tension between Beijing and Washington. Images online showed the word hegemony in English beside the Chinese characters for double standards scrawled on the metal gate and wall of the consulate. Police say they made the arrest early on Tuesday after a call from the consulate about the graffiti. The suspect is 47 years old and local media report that he hails from the mainland province of Shandong. Beijing regularly accuses the United States of holding double standards and acting as a hegemon around the world. The consulate and State Department did not have an immediate comment. The incident comes just days before Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to travel to Beijing. The trip was postponed earlier this year after the Chinese spy balloon incident. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. Consumer prices rose only modestly last month. That's good news for the stock market. The Dow up 145 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy is responding to an incident at a Burlington Middle School where some students vandalized rainbow decorations that have been displayed in recognition of Pride Month. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor said that all across Massachusetts, legal rights for the LGBTQ community are protected when it comes to education, housing, and transportation. She said she read about the incident in Burlington and was really disappointed it happened. I hope it becomes a teaching moment for the young people um, who were involved in that. Um, it's just not what you want to see at all. It's not, it doesn't represent who we are as a state. The Burlington School Committee is scheduled to meet tonight and is expected to discuss the incident. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. The COVID-19 pandemic is a key factor in high levels of burnout among Massachusetts healthcare workers. A study out today from Boston University Medical School finds that nearly 40% of healthcare workers in the state plan to leave the field within five years. The study's participants said constant exposure to patient deaths during the pandemic, along with low worker staffing levels, contributed to their burnout. A former Milton police officer accused of intimidating a black teenager over the teenager's support for the Black Lives Matter movement could have charges against her dismissed. Today, a judge ruled the officer's case will be dismissed if she avoids any additional charges in the next year. Prosecutors allege 54-year-old Patricia Leo, who is white, threatened the 14-year-old, who is a friend of Leo's son. Leo was accused of attacking her husband when he tried to de-escalate the situation. She was placed on probation for a year in order to stay away from the teenager. And the R&B soul group in vogue will headline the Boston Pops annual 4th of July fireworks spectacular this year. The Boston Symphony Orchestra made the announcement today. The annual Independence Day performance on the Charles River Esplanade is free and open to the public. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today.
Well, the day began with fog and is ending with some sunshine and some clouds around. Tonight, back to the fog. Showers possibly before midnight, lows about 60. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine duke it out. Maybe afternoon showers, temperatures in the upper 70s. The low 70s right now in Boston, 73 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. In a few minutes, we'll go to the federal courthouse in Miami where former President Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 federal counts today. Our reporter is there with more. But first, we turn to economic news. A sharp drop in the price of eggs helped push inflation to its lowest level in more than two years last month. But don't expect the hard-boiled watchdogs at the Federal Reserve to relax just yet. Some of the details in today's inflation report were less encouraging. NPR's Scott Horsley has more. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, let's start with the good news here. The annual inflation rate in May was 4%. That's less than half of what it was last summer. What's behind that improvement? Yeah, when inflation hit a four-decade high last summer, gasoline and groceries were some of the biggest culprits, and we're starting to see that unwind a little bit. Uh, Gas prices have come down about 20% from a year ago. Grocery prices are still elevated, but not by double digits as they had been. And as you mentioned, egg prices, which skyrocketed last year when avian flu wiped out a lot of laying hens, Mm -hmm. have now come back to earth. Egg prices tumbled almost 14% just between April and May. That's the sharpest one-month drop since 1951. (laughs) Uh, Mark Dresner, who's with the American Egg Board, says farmers are still keeping a lookout for the bird flu, but flocks have largely recovered. We have more than 300 million egg-laying chickens in the United States. That's nearly a bird for every American. So the egg supply is robust. I'd say it's a good time to be an egg lover. I am an egg lover. (laughs) We're also talking about the month after Easter. So demand for eggs is down a little bit. And airfares were also down last month. That's thanks in part to falling jet fuel prices. Okay, cool. That's good news at the gas pump, good news at the grocery store, but the broader inflation picture is not quite so rosy, right? So what's going on there? Yeah, gas and grocery prices get a lot of attention, but they also tend to bounce up and down a lot, which can be distracting. To get a sense of the underlying trend, economists will often look past those erratic food and energy prices and focus on what's happening with everything else. And that so-called core inflation rate is not offering quite so much relief. It was 5.3% in May, down only slightly from the month before. A core inflation is being propped up by things like rising rents and the price of used cars. Those may level off eventually, but it's taking a while. I see. Okay. Well, I understand that this inflation report is coming just as the Federal Reserve is meeting to decide what to do with interest rates, right? The Fed is set to announce its decision tomorrow afternoon. So, Scott, what are we looking for there? 
You know, the Fed's already raised interest rates at its last 10 meetings in a row. Uh, it's trying to put the brakes on inflation by making it more expensive for people to borrow money in hopes that will cool off demand. It's the most aggressive series of rate hikes in decades. And even before today's inflation report, investors were expecting the central, uh, central bank to take a breather at this week's meeting and leave its benchmark rate unchanged. Now, that's all but guaranteed after today's encouraging inflation headline. But Chief Economist Kathy Bajancic of Nationwide says given how stubborn the core inflation figure is, there could still be more rate hikes in the future. The Fed is far from calling victory on the inflation front. And I think you'll hear that from Chairman Powell. He's going to express that they still remain vigilant and concerned about inflation. And if need be, they'll raise rates again, maybe as soon as July. You know, the Fed's goal is to get inflation back down to 2%, where it was for decades before the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. And while inflation has come down a lot from that four-decade high last summer, it's still well above the 2% target. So we're not out of the woods just yet. Not just yet. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. This afternoon, as crowds of protesters converged in the Florida heat, Donald Trump's motorcade of black SUVs slipped into the underground garage of a federal courthouse in downtown Miami. The former president stepped into an elevator and headed to the 13th floor. No photographs or cameras were allowed inside the courtroom. Reporters had to check cell phones and laptops with court staff. It was Trump's first court appearance on federal charges about retaining classified information. Let's bring in NPR's Lexi Shapittle in Miami. Hi, Lexi. Hey, Ari. So you were in the overflow courtroom with hundreds of other journalists. What happened in the courthouse? Sure. So the headline here is that he pled not guilty. President Trump pled not guilty to these charges when he got to the courtroom. Before that, we know he was booked. That's a process that includes giving your personal information. Um, he did get his fingerprints taken digitally. He did not take a mugshot because the marshals can use an existing photo for their records because he's such a public figure. Uh, in the courtroom, Trump was in a blue suit and a red tie. He was with two lawyers representing him. He pled not guilty and then was released on his own recognizance. Um, as a condition of this release, he the judge ordered him to have no communication about the case with both a list of witnesses that will be provided by the government and his co-defendant, Walt Nada. So tell us about his demeanor. How did he react in the courtroom, particularly given how kind of blustery and aggressive he's been when talking about this in front of supporters? Sure. So uh, one thing to make clear is that he did not talk at all. Um, his lawyer spoke for him in court today. And in a lot of ways, it felt like any other, um, <coughs> excuse me, any other uh, serious appearance for the former president. Um, he was had his hands clasped. He ar crossed his arms. And um, like I said, he was spoken for by his lawyers. <coughs> Sorry for the frog in my throat. No problem. This is live radio. So um, he, he didn't speak. He sat with his hands crossed and he was, what, subdued? Was there much facial expression at all? Yeah, um, he definitely, I would say, was kind of subdued. Um, pretty level, I would say, was his expression. Um, not a ton of emotion. It was, um, you know, a pretty pretty good poker face, I would say, from the former president. So what is the state of play? Where exactly does this case stand right now? Sure. So, of course, um, we are talking here about 37 federal counts, including obstruction of justice and unlawful retention of defense information. This is, of course, about the storing 
of dozens of classified documents at his Florida resort in Mar-a-Lago and also um, his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, and refusing them, refusing to return them to the FBI and the National Archives. Um, in terms of what happens next, uh, we don't have a trial date yet. We know that in two weeks, his co-defendant, Walt Nada, will have to return for an arraignment. He did not offer a plea today because he has yet to retain permanent counsel. Um, so that's what we're expecting right now in two weeks, and then we'll have to wait for more. And then Trump left the courthouse. What next? Yes, so he left the courthouse. Um, we are hearing that he made a stop at a Cuban restaurant um, in Little Havana. And now he's headed to his golf club in Bedminster where he is going to give a speech to supporters. We expect that some of that bluster will come back and that he will probably take aim at the special counsel and this investigation um, now that this appearance is over. NPR's Lexi Shapittle, thanks a lot. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The federal government has been signing water rights agreements with Native American tribes. The agreements are worth a combined $8.5 billion so far, and they reverberate far beyond reservation boundaries. But it's not just free money. The tribes also have to give up a lot. Caleb Radel of the Mountain West News Bureau has more. At Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico, Red mesa tops reach for a sky bounded by snow-capped mountains, dotted with green junipers and pines that stretch for miles. The mountains feed the Jemez River. The tribe has been farming corn, chilies, and other crops here for centuries and depends on the river for irrigation. Peter Madalena is the tribe's first lieutenant governor and a lifelong farmer. We all try to share the water because we're all going for the same thing, the crop from the seed up, as they say, we grow together. So that's what we're trying to protect here, the water. But lately, they haven't been getting enough, thanks to the ongoing southwestern drought and the growing population upstream of Jemez gulping up the river. And some of that water others are using legally belongs to the Jemez. In 1908, the Supreme Court guaranteed tribes nationwide enough water for homes and farms. But the court didn't quantify exactly how much water. It's one thing to say you have water rights. It's another for a court or a state engineer to say, oh yeah, you, you do it, I'm gonna manage for that. Daniel Cordalis, who's Navajo, is a former Biden administration water attorney. The Jemez are hoping for a resolution soon. A proposed settlement with the feds would confirm the tribe's rights to enough water for about 10,000 homes. The Pueblo would also get $290 million to spend on water delivery systems. It's a lot of money for the Pueblo home to about 2,000 people. But Cordalis says tribes usually have to make compromises to get a settlement on the table. To get that money part to develop that water is, is really important because otherwise then you have a, a great water right and no real way to put it to use financially. In exchange for a guaranteed amount of water, 
and the $290 million. Jemez Pueblo agrees not to sue for their full water rights. They could claim enough water to cover all of their farmland. Instead, the settlement money would help them augment groundwater storage. The idea is to give them a supply they can tap instead of taking river flows away from other users. Cordalis says settlements are very high stakes. And for tribes, you got one bite at the apple for these water rights. And they're so important that there's a lot of fear you're going to kind of just not get what you need or something's not going to go right. The U.S. Department of Justice started prioritizing native water rights settlements in 1990. $8.5 billion worth have been approved. There's another $2.8 billion for them in the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed in 2021. But there's a long way to go. And here we are, 2023, we have 575 federally recognized Indian tribes, and we have 39 settlements. That's it. Back on the banks of the Jemez River, Peter Madalena is thinking beyond the water the Pueblo needs to grow its crops this year. It's just part of our lives. And I think it's very important that we continue the livelihood, not just for us, for, but for our grandkids and their kids way down the line. Right now, negotiation teams are working on 22 native water rights settlements in eight U.S. states. There's a federal funding stream available for them, but they can still take years to get through Congress. For NPR News, I'm Caleb Bradle. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, Donald Trump's inner circle and his political team have to determine the best path forward for the GOP presidential candidate after his historic arraignment today. And also coming up next, we say goodbye to one of the greatest novelists in American literature who died today at the age of 89. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Gore Place and the Jane Austen Garden Party. Enjoy food, games, and costumes in a setting fit for the author's famous novels, July 9th in Waltham. GorePlace.org. A nice late afternoon, still windy, a little bit humid out there. Tonight we should have cloudy skies, patchy fog, maybe some showers for the first part of the night tonight. Temperatures down around 60 degrees. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies. The chance of rain, especially in the afternoon, could make it to the upper 70s. 72 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Artificial intelligence has powered huge leaps in surveillance tech. There are automated passive camera systems that are just watching all the time and you don't even realize that you're being watched. China already tracks millions inside its borders and experts say the AI that puts eyes everywhere makes that possible much closer to home. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. One of the great novelists of American literature died today at the age of 89. 
Cormac McCarthy won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007 for his stunning post-apocalyptic father-son love story, The Road. His last novel, The Passenger, was published in October. Before that, NPR's Wade Goodwin, who died last week, had written and recorded this appreciation of McCarthy's work. There was a strong southwestern sensibility to Cormac McCarthy's books. He wrote most compellingly about men, often young men, with prose that's both stark and lyrical. McCarthy was, if not our greatest novelist, certainly our greatest stylist. J.T. Barberese is a professor of English and writing at Rutgers University. The obsession not only with the origins of evil, but also history. And those two themes intersect again and again and again in McCarthy's writing. Take, for example, this early scene in McCarthy's Western classic, Blood Meridian. A Tennessee teenage boy runs away from home and eventually lands in San Antonio, haggard and penniless. In exchange for a horse, saddle, and boots, the boy agrees to join a renegade ex-Confederate captain who intends to invade northern Mexico to claim it for white America. That night, the lad and two new acquaintances go to the local cantina. At the bar, they meet an old Mennonite who issues dire warnings that their adventure in Mexico will end badly. McCarthy's next passage is brutal and poetic. McCarthy wrote, They drank on and the wind blew in the streets and the stars that had been overhead lay low in the west and these young men fell afoul of others. Words were said that could not be put right again. And in the dawn, the kid and the second corporal knelt over the boy from Missouri, who'd been named Earl, and they spoke his name, but he never spoke back. He lay on his side in the dust, his skull broken in a pool of blood, none knew by whom. Another came to be with them in the courtyard. It was the Mennonite. There is no such joy in the tavern as upon the road there, too, said the Mennonite. He'd been holding his hat in his hands. And now he set it upon his head again and turned and went out the gate. I have read that book, I don't know how many times, a dozen times. There's one passage where he's describing the Indian raid on the cavalry group that had formed. And it was a slaughter. And it's about two paragraphs. It's some of the most extraordinarily beautiful writing I have ever seen. And it's horrifying. I mean, I, I think Fitzgerald had that ability. Faulkner had it as well. To describe menace and horror in such a way that you just cannot disengage, that's greatness. Although McCarthy was born in Rhode Island, he grew up in the South, his father a lawyer for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Embarking on a writing career, he changed his name from Charles to Cormac so as not to be confused with ventriloquist Edgar Bergen's famous dummy Charlie McCarthy. His first novel, The Orchard Keeper, was published by Random House in 1965, but it was Blood Meridian in 1985 that garnered acclaim. Then, in 1992, the first book of his border trilogy, the coming-of-age novel All the Pretty Horses, won the National Book Award and made McCarthy famous. No Country for Old Men began as a screenplay, grew into a novel, and cemented the writer's reputation as a giant of the Western canon. The movie adaptation won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, a deeply private writer. McCarthy loathed any whiff of celebrity and largely refused to do interviews, but he made an exception for Oprah in 2007. This is a first for me. I hear it, that it's a first for you. Yeah. Why, have you. why have you never done it before? Well, I don't think it's good for your head. Then McCarthy shares a tale of literary inspiration. It begins with the writer and his son in Texas. 
He and I went to El Paso and we checked into the old hotel there. And one night, John was asleep. It was night. It was probably about two or three o'clock in the morning. And I went over and I just stood and looked out the window at this town. I could hear the trains going through in that very lonesome sound. I just had this image of these fires up on the hill and everything being laid waste. And I thought a lot about my little boy. And so I wrote those pages and that was the end of it. And then about four years later, I was in Ireland and I woke up one morning and I realized that it wasn't two pages of another book. It was a book. And it was about that man and that little boy. Those few pages born in the El Paso gloom grew to become McCarthy's devastating Pulitzer Prize winner, The Road. Wade Goodwin, NPR News, Dallas. Thousands of communities on the website Reddit have gone dark. It's apparently a protest by many users. Behind the protest is a big question across the Internet. Who pays and who profits from social media? It would be hard to read about this issue in parts of Reddit today, so NPR's Bobby Allen explains it right here. The drama at Reddit is over something that sounds so technical it would send most people to sleep an Application Programming Interface, or API. It's understandable if you hear that and think, uh, what? Think of it this way, though. A digital bouncer guarding the Reddit website. There would be a, a bouncer in front of Reddit, and I would say, hey, bouncer, could you ask Reddit for all the comments on like this post I'm looking for? Or could you give me all the posts in a specific subreddit? That's Christian Selig, a 29-year-old who lives in Nova Scotia. He developed one of the most popular third-party Reddit apps called Apollo about eight years ago. At the time, there was no official Reddit app. I started building it after I graduated university and I finished an internship at Apple, so I was kind of looking for what to do next. And I really love Reddit, so a new Reddit app kind of felt like the natural thing to try to build. And his app became popular and now has 1.5 million users a month, which is only a fraction of Reddit's traffic since it's one of the most popular sites on the internet. Selig's app works by going to the Reddit bouncer, getting the OK to grab data, and loading what's happening on Reddit on his app. Until now, that process has been free. But now if you want Reddit data, you got to pay the bouncer. For virtually all apps, the pricing is so high that things would either have to drastically change or things would have to shut down. Selig's back-of-the-envelope calculation was that he'd have to pay Reddit $20 million a year to keep the app going. The app's annual revenue does not come anywhere near that, so he's announcing his app is going out of business. It is really brutal because I love building this app and for it to just suddenly, like, within two weeks for it just all crumble to nothing is, yeah, it really hurts. Reddit has explained the new fees by saying it's time for third-party developers to pay their fair share. CEO Steve Huffman has said that popular AI services like ChatGPT scrape Reddit for its wealth of online conversations and that Reddit doesn't get anything from that arrangement. The new focus on making money comes as Reddit sets its sights on taking the company public later this year. Some discussion groups, known as subreddits, are going dark for 48 hours, others for longer. The aim is to bring Reddit to the negotiating table. Chris Mason is the moderator of a popular subreddit, Explain Like I'm Five, which is taking part in the boycott. He says third-party apps help him remove nasty comments quickly. You have users who are particularly egregious, like very rude or those kinds of things. You can ban them directly from their comment on some of these apps, but you can't do that on the Reddit app. Reddit says it's made some exceptions to the new fees. It says it will still provide free access to its data to apps that help with accessibility. And access to researchers and academics will also remain free. Bobby Allen, NPR News.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. A nice breezy afternoon now. Should have cloudy skies moving in tonight. Patchy fog. Temperatures right about 60 degrees overnight. Maybe some showers before midnight. Then for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds mixing it up. The chance of rain in the afternoon especially. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Donald Trump has become the first former or current U.S. president in history to face federal charges tied to his retention of hundreds of classified documents. Today, Trump pleaded not guilty to 37 counts. It's Tuesday, June 13th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a group of firefighters say the protective gear they're required to wear contains dangerous chemicals that may cause cancer. We deserve better as firefighters. The public deserves better. When we go out the door to a call, we're coming into your homes. It's flaking off us and flowing around your house. Firefighters and PFAS coming up. And in front of a home crowd, Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets defeated the Miami Heat four games to one to be crowned the NBA champs. We'll hear about the statuesque center who was named the NBA Finals MVP. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A somewhat wild scene outside the Miami Federal Courthouse today where former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to a 37-count federal indictment in connection with charges of conspiring to hide classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate. There was a brief scuffle between security forces and people in the crowd who sought to rush the black SUV carrying Trump from the courthouse at today's hearing. Trump and his lawyer spent just under an hour in a courtroom on the 13th floor of the Wilkie Ferguson courthouse in Miami. Special counsel Jack Smith was also in the courtroom today. 
Trump's guilty pleas today stem primarily from his alleged mishandling of classified documents. NPR's Windsor Johnston has a bit more detail on Trump's arraignment at the federal court in Miami. Trump is facing more than three dozen felony charges, including 31 counts of willful retention of classified documents and six counts for allegedly obstructing efforts to return them to the FBI and the National Archives. This arraignment sets the stage for what's expected to be a lengthy process in scheduling a trial. The indictment comes just months after Trump was charged by a grand jury in New York City in a separate hush money case. Trump, who was the first president, former or current, to face federal criminal charges, has vowed to stay in the 2024 presidential race despite the charges. He's expected to deliver remarks later tonight from his golf club in New Jersey. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. A nationwide survey of patients has found Veterans Affairs hospitals outperform private health care. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports VA is the nation's largest health care system. VA health care is consistently rated on par or better than private care. VA Undersecretary Sharif El Nahal says Medicare's annual survey of patient satisfaction found veterans prefer VA over private hospitals. This offers among the first opportunities to directly compare us with our private sector counterparts. And uh, we're really happy with the results. Uh, but we won't be content until 100% of hospitals uh, are pinging in the right ratings on this. And so it's a continuous improvement effort. If VA appointments are too far away or too long a wait, vets have the option of more expensive private care. Some Republicans in Congress have pushed to expand that access and even accused the VA of trying to block it. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. While still running hotter than many economists and the interest rate setting Federal Reserve would like, inflation showed some signs of easing last month. Government says its broadest inflation gauge, the Consumer Price Index, slowed to just a 4% annual increase. Still, that's higher than the 2% target the Fed has set. Wall Street, meanwhile, reacting positively to the inflation news today. The Dow's up 145 points. The Nasdaq rose 111 points. The S&P 500 climbed 30 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, Governor Maura Healey announced the state is setting up a so-called Green Bank. The Massachusetts Community Climate Bank will use state and federal money to attract private capital. The money would help finance projects that lower carbon emissions in affordable housing units in the state. Here's WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Several states have green banks. What makes the Massachusetts one unique is that it's specifically targeting affordable housing. Retrofitting existing buildings to make them more efficient and climate-friendly can cost a lot of money up front. By loaning money through a green bank, Governor Healy says the state hopes to accelerate this work and make sure lower-income and underserved communities are not left behind. This is an opportunity to get on track to meet our net-zero 2050 target, to lead the nation's clean energy transition with Massachusetts innovation, and to strengthen our economy and our communities. Nearly a third of all carbon emissions in the state come from buildings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The state has a new director of its travel and tourism office. Kate Fox started in the role yesterday. She was formerly the executive director of Destination Salem, the tourism office in that city. She calls Massachusetts an authentic, creative, and compelling destination for visitors. The Jack Kerouac Foundation is releasing a book to honor the legacy of the acclaimed writer, who was a Lowell native. The book, Truth and Beautiful, Meaningful Lies, a collection of quotes, was released yesterday. Jim Sampas is one of its editors. He's somebody that folks from all walks of life read and gravitate toward. And I think with this work, what we're trying to do is just give them 
a sampling of the greater work so that they gravitate toward his entire catalog. Sapa says some proceeds from the book sales will go toward establishing a Kerouac museum at the former Lowell Church, where Kerouac served as an altar boy and where his funeral was held in 1969. In the forecast, could have some showers for the early part of the night tonight, some fog overnight, temperatures about 60 degrees. Then for tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both, maybe some afternoon showers. Should be another mildish day, temperatures in the high 70s. 71 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Donald Trump spent part of this afternoon offering to buy food for the patrons of a famous Cuban restaurant in Miami's Little Havana neighborhood. Of course, that came after the former president pleaded not guilty to 37 counts related to mishandling national security secrets and obstructing federal efforts to recover those secrets. And these counts come just as the Republican presidential primary is heating up. NPR's Franco Ordonez joins me now with more. Hey, Franco. Hey, Elsa. So I know that Trump didn't speak during the actual hearing today, but he certainly has not been quiet all day. What has he been saying? Yeah, he's had a lot to say. And, you know, just as he was leaving for the courthouse, he took to social media, calling it one of the saddest days in the history of the country. And he's been ripping into the special counsel, Jack Smith. He wrote, quote, he's a radical right lunatic and Trump hater, as are all his friends and family, who probably planted information in the boxes given to them. Now, Elsa, of course, there's no indication of anything being planted. But this is part of the Trump strategy to paint himself as a victim, a victim of this double standard of justice, because the DOJ, he says, is not pursuing, for example, Hillary Clinton or Mike Pence or Biden, the president, in the same way. So what do you think this strategy means for the Republican primary at this point? I mean, it is early. We'll see his opponents, though, in the Republican primary so far are treading very carefully. Speaking on Fox News, for example, Nikki Haley said the Department of Justice and FBI have lost, quote, all credibility with the American people. But she's also criticized the former president in a way that we haven't heard before. If this indictment is true, if what it says is actually the case, President Trump was incredibly reckless with our national security. But Trump's closest rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, came to his defense. And Vivek Ramaswamy Ramaswamy is urging other candidates to join him in pledging to pardon Trump if he's convicted in his federal classified documents case. I mean, that's the political environment that we're talking about. The reality is that Trump and his supporters have successfully made the case that he is being unfairly targeted. And it's really put his rivals on their back feet because they don't want to necessarily promote the charges and risk alienating voters who agree and feel that the system is rigged against Republicans. Hmm. 
Okay. Well, I understand that Trump was released without having to pay bail. Can you just tell us where he went from there? Yeah, as you kind of noted, he stopped at this popular Cuban restaurant, Versailles, where he shook hands, posed for pictures with supporters. Um, it was really like a campaign stop. He also mm-hmm. appeared to join in prayer with some religious leaders. You know, he's planning to eventually, though, head back to his golf club in New Jersey, where he'll address the indictment and host a fundraiser. So again, you know, he's trying to turn today's event to his favor. He's been doing a lot of fundraising, actually, off of this indictment. And really, you know, he has a few more times to do this. You know, he faces more legal scrutiny. He's already been indicted in New York. And there's another federal probe into the January 6 efforts to overturn the results of a presidential election. And prosecutors in Georgia are leading an investigation into Trump's efforts to pressure state officials there. I want to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, because I heard that there were Atlanta police officers watching the crowd control in Miami today. Why was that exactly? Well, this has never happened before. And each of these investigations instruct each other. The Atlanta police were there to learn so they can be prepared should their own Trump investigation result in its own indictment this summer. That is NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thank you, Franco. Thanks, Elsa. Could the clothes that firefighters wear to protect themselves actually be making them sick? That's what a group of firefighters and their families are worried about. They say chemicals known as PFAS in the coats and pants worn during emergencies may possibly contribute to higher rates of cancer among firefighters. Gabriella Emanuel of member station WBUR has more. In Diane Cotter's house, there's a room that looks like it's for knitting with wicker baskets and soft yarns, but Cotter calls it her war room. This is where the research is done and strategies come into fruition. And it was a long time that I wasn't knitting because I was so immersed in the war. Cotter's war started in 2014, right after her husband was diagnosed with cancer. Complications from the treatment forced him to give up his career as a firefighter in Massachusetts. Soon, depression set in. While he was sitting in a reclining chair slipping farther and farther away. I began researching firefighter cancer. She wanted to know if his work could have caused his cancer. Cotter stayed up night after night. Eventually, she zeroed in on PFAS, a class of chemicals that were invented in the 1930s and are used in a wide range of products because they're good at making surfaces water-repellent. Some types of PFAS have been linked to serious health concerns, like testicular cancer and kidney cancer. PFAS has long been a concern in firefighting foam, but Cotter says manufacturers wouldn't tell her if PFAS chemicals are in firefighters' thick jackets and pants. So she came up with a strategy. Emailing everybody that I could think of. I got one of 6,000 emails that she'd sent. Graham Peasley is a physicist at the University of Notre Dame. He studies PFAS and agreed to test the gear. He says it took him a year to believe the results. It was staggering how much PFAS was in there. I had never seen anything like this. He recruited others to run tests. They got the same results. And so I was concerned at that point that it might affect the firefighter. Researchers have now found firefighters, on average, have higher PFAS levels in their blood than the general public. The revelations are prompting a reckoning. Many firehouses are debating how often to wear their protective equipment. Several state houses have bills or laws about PFAS in gear. And now the battle has landed in court. As firefighters, we know we have a dangerous job. 
Edward Kelly heads the International Association of Firefighters. His union is suing the National Fire Protection Association, a group that sets standards for firefighting gear. The lawsuit alleges the standards essentially require gear to have PFAS, and it claims the group is colluding with manufacturers to keep it that way. And that's wrong. We deserve better as firefighters, and quite frankly, the public deserves better. When we go out the door to a call, we're coming into your homes. It's flaking off us and flowing around your house. Federal regulators generally defer to the nonprofit organization on standards for firefighting gear. That group called the lawsuit meritless, but declined interview requests. Seth Harper is a former employee of Gore, one of the main gear manufacturers. He says the type of PFAS it uses is safe. We were hypersensitive to the issue of PFAS exposure because we were working with the product every single day. Yet Harper admits cancer rates among firefighters are a big concern. According to a federal study, firefighters are significantly more likely than others to get and die from cancer. But instead of blaming PFAS, Harper points to another cause. What we find today is that fires are burning hotter, faster, and more carcinogenically than they have ever before. This is because modern products and building materials are much more dangerous when they burn than older materials. It's bad to breathe in the soot and particulates, but it's also a problem when it builds up on the skin. And Harper says wearing firefighting gear is one of the best defenses. If we warn people about PFAS and gear and that causes them to reduce the amount of protective gear that they are wearing, I think that that could be two steps backwards. Others counter that PFAS in gear is unnecessary. There are other ways to make something waterproof. From her war room, Diane Cotter says she's noticed more firefighters sharing their stories. If you look at my Facebook page all day long, you're going to see 35-year-old firefighters, 40-year-old firefighters with testicular cancer, kidney cancer. This was so unnecessary. Cotter is focused on reducing PFAS exposure, but she says whatever the cause, the next generation of firefighters should not have cancer rates higher than the general population. For NPR News, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. All right, let's turn to sports now, where last night NBA superstar Nikola Jokic put a bow on his career. A career where he and now his team have defied a ton of odds. At last, the long wait is over. After 47 years, the Denver Nuggets can finally call themselves NBA champions. In front of a home crowd, Jokic and the Denver Nuggets defeated the Miami Heat to clinch this year's title for the first time in franchise history. Soaking in the jubilation on the court, the ever-playful big man from Serbia was asked how he felt about winning. It's good. It's good. The job is done. We can go home now. He scored double-digit points, rebounds, and assists, as did point guard Jamal Murray. Which I'm told is called a triple-double? I guess so. Yup. And Jokic was also named NBA Finals MVP. He's now one of the most decorated players in the modern game. And he was also named league-wide MVP the previous two seasons. All this despite being an athlete who, by his own admission, used to drink three liters of soda a day. Wow. All this despite being picked 41st in the second round of the 2014 NBA draft. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great journey, 41st, uh, 41st pick. But to be honest, that doesn't matter. When you're here, you're a player. 
Also known as the Joker, Jokic also shares the nickname with tennis star and fellow Serbian Novak Djokovic, who just won the Men's French Open on Sunday. When asked how this moment felt, the basketball Joker sounded quite pleased. It's a really good, uh, good uh, moment to be a Serbian. And there's more good news for Denver fans. Jokic and most of the title-winning squad are expected back next year for another run at the NBA title. When asked about it after the game, Nuggets head coach Michael Malone said the next goal after winning a championship is to become a dynasty. We're not satisfied. We accomplished something this franchise has never done before, but we have a lot of young, talented players in that locker room. And I think we just showed through 16 playoff wins Um, what we're capable of on the biggest stage in the world. A championship parade is scheduled for Thursday. Enjoy it, Denver. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the lawyers representing Donald Trump at his arraignment today are just the latest members of the Trump legal team. Why has he gone through so many attorneys? Coming up in about 15 minutes. And coming up next, the new novel, Loot, which tells the story of war, immigration, and love, all centered around a piece of art. WBUR supporters include Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Stocks rose across the board today. The Dow picked up about four-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ hit 13-month highs. S&P rose about seven-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ picked up just over eight-tenths of a percent. Overall, consumer prices in greater Boston remained steady in April and May. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says rising housing prices were offset by declining energy prices. Overall, energy prices fell about 10 percent, led by a 17 percent drop in home energy prices. Today's report also finds it costs a little less to feed your family at home, but 1.6 percent more to eat outside the home. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And the Lyric Stage with Rooted, an offbeat comedy where two sisters and a treehouse accidentally start a cult. Through June 25th, LyricStage.com. You can tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. In the forecast, some clouds out there right now. Overnight tonight, cloudy, foggy, down around 60 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow, chance of afternoon rain, highs in the upper 70s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the late 1700s, an Indian ruler commissioned an incredible work of art. It's carved out of wood, a tiger attacking a man. And inside the tiger is a musical instrument similar to a pipe organ. 
The Victoria and Albert Museum in London posted this video showing how the automaton makes music with the turn of a crank. This real creation is at the center of a new novel, Loot. The plot travels from India to Europe, touching on war, immigration, love, and art. Tanya James is the author. Welcome. Hi, Ari. Thank you for having me. Will you describe the first time you saw the wooden tiger that is at the center of this novel? Yes, I first encountered Tipu's tiger in a book and... Tipu's tiger. Tipu is the ruler who commissioned it. Yes, it's, it's a giant mechanical tiger, as you described. And I just was so enchanted by it because I'd seen British propaganda, you know, cartoons and ethnographic representations of Indians, but I'd never seen Indian art depicting the colonizer or the English. And it was just so darkly irreverent and kind of absurd and kind of funny almost in a gruesome way and I it just... almost feels like an embodiment of a political cartoon where the tiger representing India is destroying the Englishman oh the invader. totally yeah and I think Tipu Sultan who commissioned it it he he just he was so contemptuous of the British and so determined to drive them out of India and this was actually, I think I'd read somewhere that this was a gift to his sons who had been taken hostage by the British. So, you know, he was he was just as much interested in, you know, presenting a certain idea of nationhood as we are today. And did you immediately start to wonder about the artisan who carved it? Oh, yeah. I was really attracted to the object, and I couldn't find out anything other than it was a collaboration between a local Mysorean artisan and a French engineer. And at first, I found that lack of information to be really limiting. But then it became a kind of invitation for me to kind of bring my imagination to bear on these real-life objects and events. And I remember early on when I was writing, this phrase kept popping up, which was, leave leave your mark. And mm. this character kept thinking to himself that he wanted to leave a mark on history or leave a mark on the world or to have some power beyond the grave. And now I think I probably, those that phrase was probably a product of me thinking about erasure and how about how so many artists and engineers have been, you know, erased from history and we will only know them through the work that has survived them. But is it also a personal desire to leave your mark with the literature that you create? You know, I've never thought about, I, I guess I'm sort of more of a pragmatist than a boss. <laughs> I, I I noticed that, you know, books that You were... say more of a pragmatist than a boss. We <laughs> haven't said yet. The character, the local Mysorean artist is right. named a boss. He's yes. a teenager when we meet him. And it is his wish to leave a mark on the world. Yes, yes. And he has this very idealistic idea and this very romantic idea about his destiny as an artist. And I've never... And that's not you. <laughs> no, I've never really thought about my destiny beyond the end of the day. <laughs> um, just trying to get through the next chapter or, you mm -hmm. know, trying to get to the end of the book. But he's also the kind of guy who is a product of his times. These are very brutal times. And, and so perhaps the extremity of his situation leads him to have a kind of extreme romantic view about what life could be for himself. This is a great place for you to read a paragraph where you describe the art of woodworking. Abbas is a teenager in the workshop. Will you read this from page 85? Sure. Abbas doesn't mind the silence. In fact, he prefers the sole company of carving, the sanctity of it, the way the wood almost displays a wit of its own, how it makes and unmakes its own rules. 
that a cut cannot be undone, that the grain may change depending on the cut, that you might expect a line to go one way only for it to swerve, that total control will never be yours. Does that share something with the experience of writing a novel where the plot may go in a direction you weren't expecting and you need to follow it? Yeah, I, I think that's actually the most ideal situation when I'm writing is when the writing feels like it's running just past my fingertips. And mm. I feel like um, it doesn't happen often, but it's exhilarating when it does happen. And, you know, it's often happens on the sentence level where I think I know where the sentence is going and then it turns on me or then it leaps into the mind of someone who seemed peripheral and unimportant, but shows me something about the story I didn't see uh, initially. And, and rather than fight that or being scared by that, you are delighted by it. That's something that you aspire to. Oh, yeah. I think it's really, I think when the writing is only telling me what I already know, it feels sort of dead in the water and kind of flat. Mm. But when when it has a life of its own, the, the work is kind of alive and it's sort of a dance between me and the the material. The plot of the story unfolds as almost like a heist caper. So colonial British powers take the tiger, a boss wants it back. And it, it, it raises a question that many museums are wrestling with today, including the Victoria and Albert, where this real tiger is kept. And the question is, who should own a thing? And, and your book doesn't offer a simple answer. Did writing it give you any insights? You know, I am, I've been following the restitution movement with interest, and I think every object has its own context. I personally am interested in confrontations with history, the ways in which, you know, museums are trying to address the fact that they're actually politicized places. And, you know, imagining an alternate history for this object was just one way for me to do that. Can you tell me about the title Loot? L-O-O-T. It's not the musical instrument, L-U-T-E. But it doesn't really dance around the idea that this object is perhaps not the rightful possession of the people who have it in their custody. Yeah, loot is a word that entered the English language around, I think, um, the turn of the 18th century. And I really liked it because it, its origins are Sanskritic. Hmm. And it means to plunder to thieve. And I think that there wasn't a word in the English language that could encapsulate the level of state-sanctioned theft that was going on. And wow. so I just, I love that the word captured this moment in time so specifically. And I've never written a novel where I knew the title from early on in the conception, but this was one where the moment I heard it, I, I just knew. And it was sort of a talisman as I was continuing on and trying to go from draft to draft. You know, it was such a, a word with such authority. Yeah, um, and how did you learn that it had Sanskrit roots? That's fascinating. I, I you know, in all the those phases of research, as much as I, I complained about them, you know, that was, there, there are these, you know, really amazing finds. Yeah. Tanya James, her new novel is Loot. Thank you for talking with us about it. Thank you so much, Harry.
is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, Donald Trump's arraignment and his long string of lawyers. That's ahead in about five minutes. And then at 544, as some states look to roll back child labor laws, House lawmakers in Washington are trying to protect children working in agriculture through a bill that would raise the minimum age to 14. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for some showers just before midnight. Cloudy skies, temperatures about 60 degrees. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, few clouds around. Chance of rain in the afternoon should make it to the upper 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at LaCuchara.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Former President Donald Trump made his first appearance in a Miami federal court today where he pleaded not guilty to an unprecedented 37-count indictment. The charges stem from the alleged mishandling and retention of classified documents at his Florida estate and Trump's refusal to turn over the material to investigators. The ex-president and a close aide both appeared during the hearing, Though a magistrate judge presided over today's appearance, Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, is expected to oversee the case. Former federal prosecutor Paul Butler says that raises some questions. Jack Smith, on behalf of the Justice Department, wants a very quick trial. That's one of the many areas that will be under the discretion of the judge. And that's why there's some concern that she was named based on earlier decisions in which she seemed to go out of her way to defer to the former president and then was reversed by the Court of Appeals. Trump is now on his way to New Jersey for a fundraising event tonight. FDA scientists say COVID-19 vaccines should be updated to target the latest Omicron subvariant. NPR's Rob Stein has more. FDA advisors will meet Thursday to decide how COVID vaccines should be updated for the next COVID vaccine campaign this fall. In preparation for that meeting, the FDA has released an analysis by agency scientists. It concludes the best strategy would be to abandon the so-called bivalent vaccine that targets both the original virus and the Omicron subvariant that dominated last winter, and instead target only the so-called XBB subvariant that's taken over since then. FDA advisors will recommend which XBB strain the new vaccine should target specifically. Rob Stein, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some reaction now to the arraignment of Donald Trump. This afternoon, the former president pleaded not guilty to 37 felony counts of retaining classified documents and trying to hide them from investigators. Governor Maura Healey, who is a former prosecutor, says the federal government is justified in taking Trump to court. 
No one in this country is above the law. We're all accountable to the law, and the legal process will, will play itself through. Trump has denied any wrongdoing. He is the first former president or current president in U.S. history to face federal charges. He has been released on his own recognizance. A teacher at Boston's Henderson Inclusion School in Dorchester is on the mend after what school officials say was an assault by a student today. In a letter to parents, the interim head of the school says the assault was witnessed by multiple students. The teacher was treated by the school nurse, then taken to the hospital for evaluation. A spokesman for the Boston Public Schools does not know if the teacher has been released. Police are investigating, and the school says the student involved will face disciplinary action. Transportation leaders in Massachusetts want drivers who use the Sumner Tunnel in Boston to leave their cars at home when the tunnel closes for repairs next month. It will be shut down for two months. And WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the state says using alternative transit might be the best way to avoid traffic headaches. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation estimates that about 39,000 cars use the tunnel each day. MassDOT Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver expects the closure will clog roads and delay commutes by an hour or more. Believe us when we tell you that the worst commute you're going to have is on the road through this area, so if you can take another way, you should do it. Travel alternatives include the MBTA Blue Line or the East Boston Ferry. Both will be free during the shutdown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The city of Somerville is distributing free MBTA passes to low-income households. The program will give 500 of the year-long passes to qualifying residents on a first-come, first-served basis. People in Somerville who are enrolled in a public benefits program or who earn up to twice the federal poverty level can apply for the passes. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Could have some showers for the first part of the night tonight. A foggy night to follow. Lows about 40. Tomorrow, a foggy, foggy start and then partly sunny and breezy. Maybe showers in the late afternoon. 70 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We continue our coverage on former President Trump. When he appeared today at a federal courthouse in Miami, he was represented by attorneys Christopher Kyes and Todd Blanche. They're just the latest members of the Trump legal team after two other attorneys quit this case last week. Joining us to discuss why Trump goes through so many legal teams is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so Trump always seems to have an unusual number of lawyers and seems to move quickly through those lawyers. Why do you think we keep seeing this? 
Well, for starters, he has an unusual number of legal issues, two special counsel investigations, two impeachments, a criminal conviction for his company and a criminal indictment in Manhattan, and maybe dozens of civil suits. Then he has a cadre of political advisors and a cadre of legal advisors, and there's friction. That said, Trump does have some lawyers like Chris Kyes, who appeared today in Florida, who stayed with him through a number of cases. Now, Trump fired the lawyers who had been representing him on this Mar-a-Lago documents case, but he fired them like the day after he was indicted. Why did he do that? What's your sense? So as we've seen, Trump often thinks he has a better idea of how to handle legal issues than his own lawyers, and he often overrules them. We don't know the specifics of what happened in this case yet, but what we do know, and we just saw in the recent indictment, as alleged, Trump has asked his lawyers to commit crimes for him, suggesting lying to the Justice Department and, according to his lawyers' notes, implying he should destroy or dispose of documents. Trump denies any wrongdoing, but this is not the first time we've seen evidence of this kind of behavior. And others who have worked for Trump, I mean, not just his personal lawyers, have spoken out about that, right? Most recently, his former and once loyal to a fault Attorney General Bill Barr said of the recent indictment on Fox News, if even half is true, he's toast. Michael Cohen was one of the earliest to flip on Trump, and Trump called him a rat. And others, not a personal attorney, but the former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, gave very damning testimony to the January 6th Select Committee, in essence saying he had to block some of Trump's most fringe ideas, like seizing election machines and rerunning parts of the 2020 election. Let me just ask you, Andrea, you've covered Trump's business and legal dealings extensively, including in your book, American Oligarchs. Turning through lawyers has has been an issue throughout Trump's whole career, hasn't it? Right. So when I was writing my book, I kept coming across former lawyers who told me that when Trump didn't like their legal advice, he would fire them and get another lawyer. And also that he kept stiffing his lawyers. He would call them up and say to them, you're benefiting from being associated with Donald Trump. Therefore, I'm not paying you. And many of them just had to eat the losses. So I'm curious then, which lawyers have stuck with Donald Trump? So far in the New York criminal cases, where it really matters, Trump has been able to keep some very well-respected lawyers on his team and to make sure they're paid. Other lawyers like Rudy Giuliani are ideologically committed to Trump, but that loyalty comes with a price. The white shoe law firm that Giuliani was a part of asked him to leave due to reputational damage. That happened to at least one other lawyer who worked with Donald Trump in the 2020 election matters. Hmm. Well, then over time, I'm curious, like, which lawyer has Trump had the closest, longest ties with? He loved Roy Cohn, the lawyer for Joe McCarthy, who went after and blacklisted alleged communists in the 1950s. Cohn represented Trump in a 1970s racial discrimination suit and in many, many tax cases. But even then, when Cohn, who was gay and in the closet, contracted AIDS, Trump withdrew his business. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you, Elsa. The hazardous smoke that blanketed the Midwest and East Coast, creating apocalyptic skies last week, has largely cleared. But the massive wildfires that generated all that smoke are still burning in eastern Canada. And that's where NPR's Nathan Rott is today. Hi, Nate. Hey, Ari. What's the situation right now where you are in Quebec? 
Uh, it's improving. So there's been rain kind of in fits and starts all day across much of Quebec, which has really helped the air quality here. You know, waking up in Montreal this morning, you wouldn't know that there's fires burning anywhere in the region. Uh, and there is some hope locally that the precipitation will help firefighters get a better handle on the more than 100 active wildfires that are still burning in this province. I, I say some hope because some of these active fires may not see that much rain at all. We're going to get a better idea tonight. Uh, the other big news here is that the province is finally getting some more foreign help. Uh, more than 100 U.S. firefighters are being deployed to central and western Quebec. Many of them are showing up today, uh, which is huge because local firefighting agencies have been stretched so thin over these last couple of weeks. And this isn't an area that typically has major wildfires, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this province has already had 10 times as much area burned as it normally would in a full fire season. And we're still in June, right? So that's been part of the issue. I talked to a spokesperson with the provinces of the Quebec's firefighting agency earlier today, and she said they simply don't have enough firefighting resources on hand to handle this much fire all at once, uh, which is why they're bringing in so many people from other parts of the world, New Zealand, France, the U.S., etc., so what's made this year so bad? Well, a lot of the same ingredients that caused devastating wildfire seasons in the U.S. It was a warmer and drier spring than normal across most of Canada. That means drier soils, more flammable plants. Uh, then here in eastern Canada, there was this major lightning storm, a couple of them, that started a lot of these fires in extremely remote areas. And I want to stress that, Ari, because no joke, I'll have probably driven about 11 hours today by the time the day is done, and I still I don't think I'll probably see a wildfire. These are in super remote areas. And these same conditions that are fueling the fires here in Western, in Eastern Canada are also happening in Western Canada, in British Columbia, Alberta. Both of those regions are more used to these types of big fire events, you know, similar to the Western US. Here in Quebec, it's kind of like a major firestorm sweeping across Minnesota or Wisconsin or Maine. It's not unheard of, but it's really, really rare. You cover climate change for NPR. Is there a sense of whether that is playing a role in Canada's historic start to its fire season? You know, it's too soon right now to say if, to have any attribution science completed. And I, when I say attribution science, I mean science that looks at the role that climate change plays in a specific event, like a wildfire or a heat wave or a hurricane. Uh, what we can say, though, is that this is exactly the type of event that scientists and the Canadian government, the U.S. government, say is going to be more likely as human emissions continue to warm the planet. Wildfire seasons are going to be longer. They're going to be more intense. And we're going to increasingly see wildfires burn in places that they historically didn't. So all of that we're seeing in Canada right now. And I do think it's worth reiterating, all right, you know, we still are only in June. This is very early in the wildfire season, not only in Canada, but across the U.S., all of North America. Uh, so unfortunately, I think it's fair to say that these will not be the last big fires that we find ourselves talking about over the next few months. That's NPR's Nathan Rod in Eastern Canada. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
With child labor in the news, here's something to think about. Under federal law, children as young as 12 can be hired to work on farms. But some House Democrats are trying to change that. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. This year alone, stories have emerged of 13-year-olds cleaning saws in meatpacking plants, 10-year-olds working in the kitchen of a McDonald's. But this bill is not about them. It's about the estimated tens or even hundreds of thousands of children who are legally working in agriculture. The fact that children are still put in harm's way working in the fields is a legacy of a bygone era that needs to be rectified. That's Democratic Congressman Raul Ruiz of California, one of the sponsors of the bill known as the CARE Act. The Children's Act for Responsible Employment and Farm Safety. Under federal law, children have to be 14 to work just about anywhere, and their hours have limits. But there's a carve-out for agriculture that dates back decades. Children can be hired for farm work at age 12 for any number of hours, as long as they don't miss school. And while children are generally prohibited from doing hazardous work, again, there's an exception for agriculture. At 16, children can operate heavy machinery and work at any height on farms. The CARE Act would do away with these carve-outs. We're not asking for anything more or above. We're asking for parity. Margaret Worth of Human Rights Watch says current law creates absurd parallels, where children of the same ages don't receive the same protections from dangerous work. To operate a circular meat slicer at a deli, you'd have to be 18. But to use that same kind of circular saw on a farm, you could be 16. Now, many versions of this bill have been introduced over the years, only to die in Congress. But now that child labor violations in factories and slaughterhouses have grabbed headlines, Margaret Worth is hopeful this time will be different. I think it's just an issue of people not realizing that we still have these harmful carve-outs in law that allow this to legally be happening in our country. Prior iterations of this bill met with fierce opposition from farms. At a hearing last fall, Christy Boswell, who grew up on a farm and later served in President Trump's agriculture department, warned that traditions held by farming families would be threatened. My niece and nephews would not have been able to detassel corn at ages 12 and 13 despite their parents knowing they were mature enough to handle the job. Actually, the bill has some exemptions for family farms. And Margaret Worth says it's not about keeping the children of farm owners and their cousins from working and learning the family business. It's about protecting those who are the most vulnerable. These are Latinx children and their families who are working in the fields because they're living in extreme poverty. But here lies another complexity. Many families depend on the income their children bring in. Cutting off that source of income could be devastating. Worth is under no illusions that the CARE Act would end child labor overnight. But she says it would set a legal framework for tackling the issue. If a labor inspector goes to a farm today and finds a 12-year-old working a 14-hour shift in a tobacco field, there's no violation to report. There's really nothing that inspector can say. Because that work is completely legal, something this bill seeks to change. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR, a better public bathroom for people with a physical disability. And in about 15 minutes, the scene at the Miami courthouse where Donald Trump was arrested and arraigned today. Start your day tomorrow with WBUR to hear what's next for Donald Trump after he faced more than three dozen charges today. Also, the Federal Reserve and interest rate changes. Listen tomorrow morning on the radio or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Tonight we should have some fog, showers for the early part of the evening, temperatures overnight about 60 degrees. And for tomorrow, clouds and sunshine taking turns, maybe some late-in-the-day showers with highs in the upper 70s. 69 degrees now in Boston at 549. WBUR supporters include Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. The government's poor implementation of laws it's already passed, a.k.a. red tape. We've been trying to fix this problem with more money for technology and government, more oversight, and more rules. And the evidence shows that's not working. Jennifer Palka says we can slash that red tape, but only if government commits to upgrading its technology and its working culture. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Summer festival season is here when cities block off streets for big events like the many Juneteenth celebrations happening this weekend. If you're a person with disabilities, public facilities like restrooms are often a major problem at events like these, even if everything meets the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's because there are rarely enough facilities for people with severe or profound disabilities. Texas Public Radio's Jackie Velez reports on an effort in San Antonio to add some dignity to the rows of porta-potties at America's street festivals and fireworks shows. Tracy Lewin understands more than most the need for a specialized bathroom for people like her son Mason, who has multiple disabilities and needs to be hoisted to change positions. As Mason was getting older, I realized that one of the challenges that we were facing, uh, primarily myself because I'm 5'2 on a good day, was that he was going to be taller than me rather quickly. And I was running out of spaces that I could change him when we were out um, in public together. So Lewin decided to do something about it. She partnered with a local San Antonio nonprofit called Disability SA. And after three years of fundraising and months of construction, they've created a $130,000 mobile changing unit. Let's take a tour. Recently, it made a stop at the Fiesta Especial Celebration at the Alamo Dome in downtown San Antonio. Lewin leads me into the 27-foot trailer. I should note that I use a wheelchair, and I appreciate the ramp up into it. The mobile changing unit has a wheelchair-accessible toilet. Also, if you're in a motorized wheelchair, we have a space with an outlet so you can recharge your wheelchair. In the back of the trailer is an adjustable plastic changing table. It's the size of a full-sized bed and has a handheld shower above it. Lewin says it's still a work in progress. It'll be motorized and you'll be able to move it up or down depending on where you're at um, level for transfer. Also important for the person, not only for the person who needs to be placed on the table, but also for the caregiver. There's also a Hoyer lift to help people move from a wheelchair to the changing table or toilet. Joanne Serna used the mobile changing unit today with her daughter Vanessa. Vanessa has a neurological disorder that affects muscle movement. Serna called it a godsend 
because it makes it easier to take her daughter to festivals. This unit has everything. It has a changing table, it has a Hoyer, has a toilet. And it's secure, it's private, and it's just, it's wonderful. Tracy Lewin beams when she hears comments about what this service means to people. To see this in person, out in community, my mother-in-law is here from Michigan, came out and saw it for herself, and we teared up inside the mobile changing unit because it means something to the people who honestly have some of the hardest struggles, who battle to get just the basic necessities met. The idea that you can toilet in privacy and dignity like any other person, um, you know, should be happening for everyone. Lewin's dream is a fleet of these mobile changing units. There's already a similar effort underway in Los Angeles. She says each MCU should have a name. The first one is called Mason, after Tracy Lewin's son, the inspiration for it all. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Velez in San Antonio. The word laureate is most often attached to the winner of a Nobel Prize or a poet whose job is to mark official occasions in verse. Well, to this list, we can add another title, Drag Laureate. NPR's Chloe Veltman recently joined the country's first drag laureate for her inaugural public appearance, unfurling the pride flag outside San Francisco City Hall. Getting Darcy Drollinger ready for her first official appearance as San Francisco Drag Laureate is a production. I do need to get my nails on, so... The artist, nightclub owner and newly appointed government official stands in the living room of her San Francisco apartment as two helpers grapple with a set of bejeweled, custom-made artificial nails. What is that one? That's a middle finger. That's a thumb, honey. Wait, that's a thumb. Okay, then what is that? That's the other thumb. Oh, God. Yves Saint Laurent lipstick? Check. Knockoff Gucci sunglasses? Check. Wallet and keys? Check. Check. Wedged into a pair of white patent stilettos and a tight pink skirt suit, Drollinger eventually steps out of the house and into a very busy week. I am speaking at the San Francisco Arts Commission. I'm also in the same day speaking at the Entertainment Commission. Um, I'm also going to speak at a high school. I'll be in the parade with the mayor. San Francisco Mayor London Breed says the city's LGBTQ task force proposed the creation of the drag laureate position around three years ago, during the darkest days of the COVID-19 pandemic. The creativity, the joy that a drag laureate brings, because we've been through a really hard time. In fact, Breed says one of Darcy Drollinger's selling points as a candidate for the job was her track record as a spreader of sparkle. The nightclub owner pivoted during lockdown to create a food delivery service. Meals on heels. Performers in drag from Drollinger's nightclub delivered meals and cocktails to San Francisco residents with a side order of lip syncing. Come on, you're just joining me, right? Come on. But Mayor Breed says the recent attacks against drag performers, as well as a rise in anti-drag legislation in different parts of the country, now make the appointment of a drag laureate particularly crucial. In some of those communities where something like this wouldn't be considered acceptable behaviour, there's a kid that's thinking, oh my goodness, she's like me. I can be myself without fear. It's scary right now. The backlash is real. 
That's Kylo Freeman. They're the force behind Drag is Divine. The ad campaign aims to raise awareness and funding to help fight anti-drag laws. Freeman says they're excited to see local governments highlight drag culture in such a visible way. In West Hollywood, officials plan to appoint a drag laureate later this month. I think it's a real step forward to have these roles in place giving us folks that can speak on behalf of the community at a large scale. But plans to create a drag laureate in New York, where Freeman is based, have stalled. And Freeman says they don't see similar positions cropping up in parts of the country less friendly to LGBTQ people anytime soon. We are so politicised right now, and I think we've forgotten that this is just a human rights issue. Pull it, pull it, pull it. There we go. At San Francisco City Hall, Darcy Drollinger assists the mayor in the traditional unfurling of the pride flag and makes her first official speech. Drag is many things. Drag is art. Drag is activism. Drag is joy. Drag is instrumental to bringing people together. Drag is fabulous. Afterwards, Drollinger cheerfully admits she's not quite prepared to meet the demands of her new job. For instance, being on one's feet at long-winded civic functions isn't super compatible with the wearing of three-inch stilettos. But the nation's first-ever drag laureate says she's willing to improvise. Sometimes you have to lip-sync to whatever song gets turned on. Because that's what trailblazers do. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. From Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, exploring how to fight a protein that keeps cancer cells alive. Learn more about Dana-Farber's Momentum of Discovery at DanaFarber.org slash stories. From Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com slash care. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still windy and sticky out there. Tonight we should have some showers before midnight, mainly cloudy skies, patchy fog, lows about 60 degrees. And for tomorrow, sunshine mixing it up with clouds. The chance of rain before the end of the day should make it to the upper 70s tomorrow. Then brighter skies for Thursday, still in the 70s. 69 degrees now in Boston at 559. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
To me, this is the worst thing in our country in history, maybe besides for Republicans, Abraham Lincoln being assassinated. The arraignment of former President Donald Trump today on federal charges in Miami. He pleaded not guilty to 37 charges. Today is Tuesday, June 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the recent abrupt shortage of critical cancer drugs highlights a broken business model and generic drugs that leaves patients in the U.S. and all over the world more vulnerable. Con artists are using new technology to impersonate law enforcement, and hundreds of people are falling for the scam. Also, as the NBA crowns the Denver Nuggets the champs, we take a look at the financial surprise that awaits postseason winners and losers. The jock tax coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Via his lawyers, former President Donald Trump today pleaded not guilty to a multi-count indictment in federal court in Miami. Trump facing charges of wrongly holding classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate. NPR's Kerry Johnson says it appears the prosecution wants to move forward quickly. Jack Smith told us that he wants a speedy trial. And if you look at that law, it says a trial within 70 days of today. Uh, But there are some complicating factors here. One is that there's a lot of classified information involved. However, it's not clear what Trump's legal strategy might be, including challenging evidence in the case. Unsupported claims that he's being treated differently than others. And he may also want to try to, to get that evidence provided by his lawyer, Evan Cork, out of the case, which is very powerful evidence about that obstruction, that conspiracy to obstruct him. NPR's Kerry Johnson. Trump left Miami after his court appearance. He's flying to New Jersey, where he's expected to respond publicly to the charges. The Biden administration is extending temporary protected status for hundreds of thousands of people from several countries. NPR's Joel Rose reports immigration authorities are dropping the Trump administration's effort to terminate the protections. U.S. immigration officials are extending temporary protections for more than 330,000 immigrants from El Salvador, Honduras, Nepal, and Nicaragua once again, allowing them to live and work legally through 2025. But the move stops short of a broader expansion of temporary protected status, backed by Democrats and immigrant advocates. TPS was created to help citizens from countries where conflict or natural disasters make it unsafe to return. The Trump administration argued that those protections should not be permanent, but its efforts to terminate TPS have been tied up in court. Now the Biden administration says it will officially rescind the prior administration's attempts to end TPS. Joel Rose, NPR News. Writer Cormac McCarthy has died, winner of both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. McCarthy died today at the age of 89. The late Wade Goodwin earlier filed this appreciation of McCarthy's work and literary legacy. It is solace to writers everywhere that the book that's now considered one of the great Western novels of all time, Blood Meridian, was widely ignored when it was published in 1985. It was only after McCarthy's book, All the Pretty Horses, took the literary world by storm seven years later that readers discovered his earlier works. No Country for Old Men was a sensation in 2005, and the movie adaptation won the Academy Award for Best Picture. A year later, Knopf published The Road, a devastating post-apocalyptic work of imagination that won McCarthy the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. Wade Goodwin, NPR News. One great writer celebrating another both gone too soon. NPR's Wade Goodwin lost his battle with cancer last week. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up 145 points. You're listening to NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey is responding to an incident at a Burlington Middle School where some students vandalized rainbow decorations that were displayed in recognition of Pride Month. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor said that all across Massachusetts, legal rights for the LGBTQ community are protected when it comes to education, housing, and transportation. She said she read about the incident in Burlington and was really disappointed it happened. I hope it becomes a teaching moment for the young people um, who were involved in that. Um, It's just not what you want to see at all. It's not, it doesn't represent who we are as a state. The Burlington School Committee is scheduled to meet tonight and is expected to discuss the incident. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A former Milton police officer who was accused of intimidating a black teenager for his support of the Black Lives Matter movement could have charges against her dismissed. A judge ruled today in the case against Officer Patricia Leo and said it will be dismissed if she avoids any additional charges in the next year. Prosecutors allege the 54-year-old officer, who was white, threatened the 14-year-old. He was at her home visiting her son. She was placed on probation for a year in order to stay away from the teenager. The general manager of a Massachusetts electric uh, electrical company has pleaded guilty to defrauding the state's commuter rail operator out of more than $4 million. 69-year-old John Rafferty of New Hampshire will face up to five years in prison and a quarter-million-dollar fine when he's sentenced this fall. Between July 2014 and November 2021, Rafferty and an alleged co-conspirator submitted false invoices for electrical work. They submitted them to Keolis. Instead, prosecutors say Rafferty used the money to buy construction equipment, home building supplies, and a camper. Marine researchers found four killer whales off the coast of Nantucket this weekend. Scientists from the New England Aquarium flew over the region on Sunday. They spotted the orca whales swimming together about 40 miles south of Nantucket. It's unusual to see them in New England waters. The aquarium's Orla O'Brien says it felt like a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. To see four of them swimming together was just really incredible. It's something that I think we all would have loved as children and and grew up wanting to see. So getting to fulfill that um, dream or experience was really amazing. During the seven-hour flight, the researchers spotted four killer whales along with 23 fin whales, including a mother and calf, five minke whales, 20 humpbacks, and 62 bottlenose dolphins. In the forecast, 69 degrees now in the Boston area. Some showers could move in tonight, followed by an overcast night down around 60. Tomorrow, we could wake up to fog with sunshine and clouds moving in for the bulk of the day, making it to the high 70s again tomorrow. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's been an historic afternoon. As we've been reporting, former President Donald Trump turned himself into federal authorities in Miami. He pleaded not guilty to 37 charges. Prosecutors say he took classified information with him after leaving office and obstructed efforts to recover them. This is the first time a former president has been indicted on federal charges. Thousands of people gathered outside the federal courthouse. And that's where NPR's Greg Allen is also. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ari. Before we discuss that scene outside, tell us what happened inside the courtroom today. Well, you know, this is a federal court, so there's no video cameras uh, and laptops 
and cell phones were not even allowed inside today for media, which does happen in some, in some cases. In the courtroom, there are seats for about two dozen journalists, but there was a big overflow room for members of the public and other reporters. And President Trump pleaded not guilty to each of the 37 federal charges related to his retention of classified information after leaving office. It was a quick court hearing, less than an hour. And while that was happening, what was going on outside the court where you are? Well, it's definitely been a chaotic scene here all day long. Uh, Trump supporters have arrived throughout the day. Among them was uh, Luis Medina, who said he was from Miami. He said he felt the charges against the former president are unfair. What you got to realize is today the U.S. Constitution is on trial because that's his citizen, Donald Trump, no longer president. And if that happens to you and I, how can we defend ourselves? It was a difficult to get a number of, of how many people were here, but as the president led the court, because they're all scattered through the crowd, as the president led the courthouse, where they gathered outside and, and where his motorcade was leaving from, and uh, it was quite a scene. I'd say there was well over a 1,000 people there, maybe in, in the low thousands. And was it relatively peaceful? Any signs of tension or violence? Well, yeah, you know, not. it was generally peaceful. Uh, it's really been just something like a carnival atmosphere all day long with vendors here selling Trump T-shirts and hats. Uh, at one point, mayor of, the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, came by to assess the scene. Here's what he I said. I think we are managing the situation very well right now. There haven't been any incidents, and uh, we obviously have a, a, a very large force, and we have contingency plans to grow um, if there's any issues. You know, this is a real volatile crowd here, though, and Mayor Suarez, although he's a Republican, he's been talking about entering the presidential race, and as he was talking to the media and walking through the crowd, Trump supporters started chanting, Rhino, shame on you, you know, for uh, Republican in name only. So hmm. he was not popular with the Trump supporters here today. There were also some incendiary posts on social media, some of them calling for violence. Were police concerned? Well, you know, yesterday Miami's police chief said he'd seen the posts and didn't consider them credible. And I think, you know, the way things turned out shows that he was correct in that in that case. Uh, former Arizona Republican candidate for governor, Carrie Lake, was one of those who seemed to be talking about violence in her social media in her. In her in her speeches. She was here today, but didn't address the crowd. Um, you know, there, there was really just a small smattering of anti-Trump protesters here, but that did lead to some heated exchanges. In one case, uh, that, that seemed to be moving toward violence. Police, police stepped in and they separated the parties. And that was about it in terms of what I saw today in terms of the threat of violence. And what could you tell about who came out for this? Why so many people came out? Like, what was their motivation? Well, you know, the crowd here really was a South Florida crowd. Almost every Trump supporter I and fellow reporter Peter Hayden talked to today said they're from you know, Miami or, or suburbs of Miami. And we heard a lot of chanting on loudspeakers and in crowds in, in English and in Spanish. Uh, Trump, of course, over his term as president, gained a lot of support from the Cuban-American community here in South Florida. And uh, many people have been falsely accused. And today we heard many people accusing Joe Biden falsely of being a communist. Uh, Trump himself has even picked up on that rhetoric using the saying the U.S. is on the verge of becoming a communist country. So his, it's really resonating, I think, some of his, his talk and, his, and, his, and being under, under fire here by the justice system. I think people here are really rallying around. That's NPR's Greg Allen outside the federal courthouse in Miami, where former President Donald Trump pleaded not guilty to the 37 counts against him. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Many patients fighting cancer are facing another agonizing problem. Some key drugs that are used to treat the disease are in short supply, and there's no immediate fix. NPR's Yuki Noguchi explains how a broken market for generic drugs means shortages like this are affecting more people. When I reached Tony Desimitz at her home outside Raleigh, 
she first tells me not to pity her for having advanced ovarian cancer. But you know what? <laughs> I'm probably the toughest person you're ever going to meet. She's faced death and the fear of it. She fought in the Gulf War. She then climbed police ranks, becoming chief before retiring. At 55, she still feels mentally tough and physically prime, despite her stage four diagnosis. When we're done talking, I'm gonna go on a 10 mile bike ride. The other day I did 20 miles, so I'm gearing up for next week. I try to gear up all the way until the day I have chemotherapy. So I don't ever sit around and go, well, how long do people live with this cancer? I know what the statistics say. But even Desimates felt scared in early April. A medicine called carboplatin, which had almost eliminated tumors in her previous rounds of treatment, was in very short supply. Not just carboplatin, but also a similar drug called cisplatin. Both are core to treating many different cancers. The Food and Drug Administration recently said it would allow import of unapproved cisplatin from China. Still, experts say it may be year's end before shortages might begin to ease. All that has put Desimates in a tough spot. So here I am faced with two suboptimal treatment plans. One choice, substitute a drug with more severe side effects like nausea and nerve pain. The other, continue treatment without it. She opted to go without, but won't know the health implications of that choice for weeks at her next scan. The story of how these two critical medicines, plus more than a dozen other cancer drugs, ended up in shortage boils down to a faulty system of generic drug making overall. That's something Professor Kevin Schulman researches at Stanford. We have a market that's really just totally focused on price. Americans rely on generic drugs for over 90 percent of their prescriptions. But Schulman says it's hard for drug makers to make a profit on medicines once their patents run out. Manufacturers are under constant pressure to make generic product at the lowest cost possible, even at a loss. That's led to factory shutdowns. Those that remain are driven to cut dangerous corners. Take Intus, the India-based company that made half the U.S.'s key cancer drugs. FDA inspectors found evidence of major safety and quality violations last November. They shut it down, which abruptly cut supply. Shulman says it's a global problem. The pursuit of low-priced generics has come at the expense of safety and ensuring steady supply. Currently, about 130 generic drugs are in shortage or unavailable, and that list keeps growing. I mean, we save hundreds of billions of dollars a year using generic drugs rather than brand name drugs, but we only save that money if the drugs are available. And when crucial drugs are not available, Denver oncologist Jennifer Rubot says the toll feels very heavy. Several weeks ago, her health system's pharmacist told her both key cancer drugs her patients rely on ran out. They recommended substitutes. When I was faced with this drug substitution for a young woman with young kids, I did cry because but if her cancer comes back, I am always going to question if it was because I had to give her a substitute. Drug shipments have since trickled in. But Rubat worries they'll run out again and pours over research looking for alternatives least likely to compromise patients' care. Last month, the Society for Gynecologic Oncology issued recommendations for doctors, advising them on managing use of limited drugs if supply runs lower. Patients with early-stage, high-risk disease should be top priority. It also recommends using minimum doses and stretching time between treatments to make it last. 
Amanda Fader is at Johns Hopkins and is president-elect of the society. There's hundreds of thousands of patients being impacted by the shortage, and even missing one or two cycles of treatment could impact patients' outcomes. Fader says in the longer run, the business model itself must change to ensure good quality supply. Certainly a reimagined model of delivery to hospital systems, whether directly from manufacturers or an improved intermediary model, I think is critical. Civica offers one such alternative. The nonprofit formed five years ago to address shortages of other drugs, especially injectable ones, which are more complex to make. Civica purchases medicines directly from manufacturers to supply health systems that operate 1,500 hospitals. It conducts its own quality control and fixes drug prices high enough to ensure factories can stay in business. Alan Cockle heads public policy for Civica and says there are other benefits. It also lets us build up an inventory reserve. So we actually hold roughly six months of drug in a warehouse. Cockle says Civica now supplies 80 essential drugs, things like antibiotics or anesthesia. It's evaluating whether and how to add cancer drugs to its list. But even if it does, it will take many months, maybe longer, before it could benefit patients like Tony Desimitz, the retired police chief. Yet she's worried more about others. My oncologist is beside herself. I mean, they're struggling too because, you know, they've signed up to help people and they're powerless. She's joined support groups with hundreds of other cancer patients, many of whom lament how the drug shortage compounds their suffering. Some reach out to Desimitz for support from around the country. As she has throughout her life, Desimitz welcomes those calls as an opportunity to serve others. Like right now you're living, and that's, that's what I say. I'm like, I'm living right now. Mentally, if you can keep yourself in a very positive mindset, it will carry you very far in a cancer journey. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on Marketplace, the annual rate of food inflation in the U.K. was 19 percent in April. The annual rate in the U.S. was 7.7 percent in the same month. What's keeping food in Britain so expensive coming up? And ahead next, the jock tax. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting The Contention, Henry VI, Part Two, June 17th through July 15th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. Stocks rose today across the board. The Dow picked up about four-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ hit 13-month highs. The S&P rose about seven-tenths of a percent, and the NASDAQ picked up just over eight-tenths of a percent. Overall, consumer prices in Greater Boston remained steady in April and May. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says rising housing prices were offset by declining energy prices. Overall, energy prices fell about 10 percent, led by a 17 percent drop in home energy prices. The report also finds it costs a little less to feed your family at home, but 1.6 percent more to eat outside the home. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. 
committed to conserving and promoting New England's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. More at nativeplanttrust.org. And the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott strive to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. The Red Sox take on the Colorado Rockies again at Fenway tonight as the second game of a three-game set. Cutter Crawford pitches tonight for Boston. Chase Anderson takes the hill for Colorado. First pitch is at 7:10. 69 degrees now in the Boston area at 621. WBUR supporters include Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Phone scams are surging because they're getting more sophisticated. The most pervasive kind involves con artists impersonating law enforcement in some pretty innovative new ways. NPR's tech correspondent Derek Kerr reports. It was around 1 in the afternoon on a Monday when Valeria Hato's phone rang. It was from a number she didn't recognize. His name is Officer Robert Daniels from the Department of CBP, something like this. CBP, as in U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Hato Googled Officer Daniels and it checked out, and the number and her caller ID was from his office listed online. He said he'd intercepted a package from Mexico. It was addressed to Hato. In that package, they found narcotics, they found cash, driver's license, and fake social security numbers all under my name. He said he had a warrant for Hato's arrest. She was panic-stricken. I always get a little bit nervous or paralyzed if there's something legal that I have to deal with. I got very nervous and I cried. Then it got more complicated. Supposedly, she had two illegal properties in Texas, along with illegal bank accounts. Hato's from Argentina, but lives in Queens, New York, and has no connection to Texas or Mexico. And I was like, this is not happening. Like. This is just not real because it just sounded so much like a movie. And this wasn't just one phone call. She was routed to multiple law enforcement agencies. She spoke to a U.S. Marshal in Texas who had a Texan accent and a police officer in Queens who sounded like he grew up in the neighborhood. And the only way to fix the problem was to move her money from her bank account to a safe place. They really took me in a trip of darkness where I was imagining the police coming here, arresting me for all this illegal stuff. This scam is known as an imposter scam. It's the top fraud in the country right now. UCLA psychologist Alan Castell says this is why it works. They prey on our insecurities. So unfortunately, scammers are like psychologists in the wild. This particular imposter scam involving several law enforcement agencies is especially pervasive. The U.S. Marshals even warn about it on their answering machine. Please know, the U.S. Marshal Service nor any other law enforcement agency will ever ask you for money over the phone. Brady McCarran is a real U.S. Marshal. He gets calls from scam victims as many as six or seven per day. Nearly all get the same script Hato heard. McCarran says the scammers do use names of actual U.S. Marshals. They've even used his boss's name. And they tell them, look on the website. That's me right there. That's So you know I'm, I'm not lying to you. I'm real. Phone scams have been around forever. But now, con artists get information from the internet to impersonate real people. There's technology that can clone accents. And there's caller ID spoofing. McCarran says that's why the incoming calls look like they're from actual agencies. 
He hears from people who've fallen for the scam. They've lost $10,000, $30,000. Those are the phone calls I hate to get. And it tears my heart apart to hear these stories. The U.S. Marshal Service refers these scams to the FBI and the Federal Trade Commission. Lois Greisman from that agency says many of these calls are coming from overseas. And people lost a total of $2.6 billion to imposter scams just last year. What is particularly pernicious about the imposter scams is that there's a relatively high rate of people who are duped by them. Valeria Hato stayed on the phone with the scammers for more than three hours. They stopped accusing her of crimes and said she was clearly a victim of identity theft. If she wanted to secure her bank account, the only way to do that was to withdraw money and deposit it into a cryptocurrency ATM machine. That's when she finally drew the line, even though they threatened to freeze her bank account. I am not going to put any money on any digital currency. I don't understand those things. Forget about it. That's not for me. She hung up without giving them money, although part of her still believed their story. When she woke up the next morning, her bank account wasn't frozen. All her money was there. That's when she finally realized she narrowly escaped a scam. Dara Kerr, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All hail the Denver Nuggets, who as of last night are the new champions of the National Basketball Association. But do spare a thought for their opponents in the NBA Finals, the Miami Heat, who not only travel back to Florida disappointed, but also have to pay taxes to the state of Colorado. It's colloquially known as the jock tax. It's an income tax that many places charge non-residents on money earned while visiting. It's enforced mostly on visiting entertainers and pro athletes who can make high incomes. And while it's been around for decades, it came to prominence in the summer of 1991. Paxson open again. John Paxson continues to provide the crushing shots. That's when the sharpshooting of point guard John Paxson helps Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan and the rest of the Chicago Bulls start an NBA dynasty. And the Chicago Bulls have won their first ever NBA championship. They clinched that first title against the Los Angeles Lakers in L.A. And afterwards, it came to light that the state of California was taxing the income that each Bulls player and staff member earned while in state, meaning while beating the Lakers. So in response, Illinois drafted up jock tax legislation of its own, which earned its own nickname, Michael Jordan's Revenge. Today, every state with an income tax assesses a jock tax on visiting pro athletes, and some cities do too. A lot of athletes have to file lots of returns. That's Ed Zielinski, professor at Yeshiva University's Cardozo School of Law. 
these kinds of taxes on non-residents' income have been on the books for years. The reason we're talking about this is that it's been in the last couple of decades that cash-starved states and cities have gotten more serious about enforcing these taxes. For instance, the state of California brings in hundreds of millions of dollars in these taxes yearly. Not much within the hundreds of billions the state makes in taxes every year, but, you know, not nothing. While most multimillionaire athletes can afford it, filing in more than a dozen places does eat away at the salaries of athletes who aren't stars or who play at a lower level. In some ways, I'm more concerned about the minor league players because they are individuals who have much lower incomes, and yet they're subjected often to the same degree of complexity. Same is true of touring musicians, as I know firsthand. (laughs) Sorry, Ari. Enforcement often shows up in the form of deficiency bills. This is the ultimate tax that a tax collector likes to impose because it's on a non-voter. Law professor Ed Zielinski forecasts that even more state and city tax commissioners will follow suit now that federal relief funding from COVID-19 has dried up. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Start your day tomorrow with 90.9 for more analysis of what's next for Donald Trump after his arraignment today. Also, the Fed and potential interest rate changes. Listen tomorrow morning on the radio or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. We may have showers for the first part of the night tonight. A foggy night, lows about 60. Tomorrow, a foggy start. Then partly sunny, breezy again. Could have showers before the day is out. Temperatures in the upper 70s tomorrow. This is WBUR 69 degrees at 630. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with the Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA.